I think the tricky piece about that too is that sometimes we're under the misconception that as soon as they get sober, um, we won't have that need for compassion anymore because they'll just suddenly become a regular human being. Welcome to episode 33 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Mark. He used the donation basket button on our website. Thank you, Mark, for your generous contribution. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with a seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Today we are going to talk about compassion. Do you find yourself getting easily impatient with others? Do you feel judgmental towards someone no matter how hard you try to let go? Do you have trouble finding compassion for alcoholics and addicts in your life? Are you having trouble finding compassion for yourself? Let's talk about it. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During the show, we will share our own experiences as they relate to the topic of compassion. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Swetha, and I will be your host today. Joining me is co-host Kelly. How are you today, Kelly? I'm doing pretty well, Swetha. Thanks. Great. And next to Kelly is co-host Spencer. How are you, Spencer? I'm feeling good. Good. The first segment of today's show will be our discussion of the topic compassion. Following a musical break, we will talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in the meetings we attend and in our lives. We will follow that with brief news about the podcast before closing with another musical break. Our reading for today comes from Courage to Change for the October 3rd date. For me, the beginning of learning compassion was to eliminate such behavior. While I still have a hard time defining compassion, I think it starts with the recognition that I am dealing with a sick person who sometimes exhibits the symptoms of a disease. I don't have to take it personally when these symptoms such as verbal abuse appear, nor do I have the right to punish anyone for being sick. I'm a worthwhile human being. I don't have to sit and take abuse, but I have no right to dish it out either. As I said, my name is Swetha, and today we're going to talk about compassion. And so we're going to start with what I think is a really hard question. What is compassion? And since I think it's really hard, I'm going to let someone else answer it first. (laughs) Kelly? Well, um, I looked in dictionary.com. And it defines compassion as a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune. Uh, It also says that it's accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. I guess, to me, that definition sounds like a way that I would have felt or behaved before I came to the program. To me now, maybe compassion is more along the lines of maybe empathy or sympathy in the sense that I don't feel like I still have, when I'm feeling compassion towards someone, I don't necessarily feel like I have that need to alleviate their suffering. Mm. Um, I think it's more just, I don't know, it's really hard to define. Um, I know. (laughs) I feel like it's. It's an understanding of the situation they're going through without having to live it with them. Mm-hmm. And and to me, it kind of takes me to that hula hoop place. Like, I can, I can be understanding of their situation without having to jump in there and mm-hmm. do it with them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know, Spencer? 
So I look at the um, the etymology of the word and compassion. Um, you know, you take it apart as literally suffering with passion in the sense of the passion of Christ, mm-hmm. not passion in the sense of I love you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and calm meaning together or with. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, compassion. I mean, understanding is there, but. It's an emotional, a spiritual understanding, not an intellectual understanding. I think for me that's the difference between sort of understanding someone's situation and feeling compassion. And I have a, I have a reading here that uh, just, it really, really spoke to me. In fact, I think um, I sent an email about this reading to you guys, and that's what sparked the idea for this topic. So the, the reading is from the book Tattoos on the Heart, um, which is by the Reverend Greg Boyle. And he works with gang members in L.A. Uh, to bring them, to give them an opportunity to, to come back into a normal life. And he works with people in and out of the, the court systems in the jails and so on. And this, this, little, this little story comes from uh, a time when he was uh, in a prison uh, working with uh, felons. Uh, and uh, he was doing sort of a... a a reading class, in effect, you know, reading and talking about, about stories. He says, One of the stories was Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find. After they read it, we come to the grandmother's transformation of character. She would have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to shoot her every minute of her life. My students speak of this woman's change and seem to use these terms interchangeably, sympathy, empathy, and compassion. Like any teacher, stalling until the bell rings, I ask these felons to define their terms. I want to uh, pause here for a moment. These guys um, are mostly Hispanic, and so they're using some uh, Hispanic slang here. And in particular, there's this word spensa, which appears to mean uh, sorry or I feel you or something to that effect. So, well, sympathy, one begins, is when your homie's mom dies and you go up to him and say, Spensa, sorry to hear about your moms. Just as quickly, there's a volunteer to define empathy. Yeah, well, empathy is when your homie's mom dies and you say, Spence, about your mom's. Sabes que? My mom's died six months ago. I feel you, dog. Excellent, I say. Now, what's compassion? No, takers. The class collectively squirms and stares at their state-issue boots. Come on now, I say. Compassion. What's it mean? Their silence is quite sustained, like visitors entering for the first time some sacred, mysterious temple. Finally, an old-timer down 25 years, tentatively raises his finger. I call on him. Well now, he says, all eyes on him, shaking his head. Compassion. That's something altogether different. He ponders what he'll say next. Cuz, he adds humbly, that's what Jesus did. I mean, compassion is God. So there we are. Wow. Well, it's going to be hard to follow that. <laughs> um, I uh, I really like that the difference between empathy and sympathy and compassion was um, given in that story. I thought some a little bit about this question, and I think compassion is like different from sympathy and empathy, which I think were pretty succinctly defined in that story. Um, compassion may be, for me, recognizing the humanity in another person regardless of what they're going through i think i think there's the um the ego 
of every person, where which is where we experience our feelings and our emotions, which are transient and temporary. And um, beneath all that is is our humanity. And and recognizing that in another person, regardless of whether going through whether they've been through whether you've been through something similar similar to that or not, uh, is I think compassion and and seeing that and having compassion when it's someone else that has nothing to do with you is really really easy um, because it doesn't affect you. But I think for me, when I'm having an interaction with someone that's close to me and it and my feelings are getting hurt or my my pride is uh taking a few blows and it's uh, my pride's pretty big so it's uh it's really easy to hit that it's a lot easier for me to forget compassion and and I stop seeing them as human I don't even realize when I consciously make that change but I stop seeing them as human and I start looking at them like they're like a monster or something like that immediately I stop this connection between me and them this connection of you're a person and I'm a person and we're having a conversation. Immediately I go to, you're different. And uh, in that difference, I, I make it like this categorical sort of thing. There's just no way that they could be anything like me. And I lose compassion in that moment. And the second I lose that compassion is the second that I give into this fear. Um, <clears throat> because the first step in for me for putting on this defensive stance is to separate myself from another person. And I need to do that on every level because I can't in any way be wrong before I start fighting with someone, right? <laughs> and um, so I have to absolutely be right. In order for me to absolutely be right, they have to be absolutely wrong. They have to be absolutely bad and they have to be a monster. And so uh, I cut out the compassion and I stop seeing them as human. Luckily, I have people I can talk to. And after I call them and talk to them, I'm able to, it's interesting, across the board, anytime I talk to someone about a situation, well, not anyone, uh, people in the program, <laughs> the first thing they do is talk to me about how the other person might be seeing the situation. And it may not be a conscious thing, but immediately, immediately I start having more compassion. Immediately they stop being a monster because I'm like, oh yeah, I could see, I don't agree with that. I think that's just crazy, but <laughs> I can see why this person would do that. And I would, st I would say person, I wouldn't see them as a monster anymore and compassion is restored. And that's like step one for me to get back to a place of serenity and a place of being able to interact with the person. Because if I don't have compassion, I definitely can't interact with them. I mean, I, I could, it's just not really an interaction. It's me versus them, not me interacting with them. So that's, that's compassion for me. You know, one of our one of our thought questions here is why does compassion matter? Mm. And I think you really hit hit that one right on the head with this seeing the other person as human. That when we have compassion, and maybe at other times, but certainly um, when we have compassion, I don't think we can have compassion for somebody without seeing them as totally human, as as equally human as we are. Um, and and it's like that connection at a, at a deeper level. I know that it's very tempting for me, and I'm sure when I was coming into the program, when I was in the pain of the alcoholic situation, that it was really easy to see my loved one, the person, as, as the, the, the reading said, the person who I said I loved, uh, to see that person as other, to see that person as not 
not human as as an obstacle as a barrier as a an annoyance um and to put up that wall and and when i do that then i sort of deny my own humanity too when i put up that wall i i turn myself into um a person who who others somebody and and is not not the person that i think i want to be i don't know what do you guys think i mean that was part of the reason why i liked the reading that we started with is because you know they did i don't remember if it was in this reading or it may have been the the reminder that comes after it but it talks about being the kind of person that yeah it's in the reminder is in the reminder that that they want others to be Mm. Or that, can you so, read so it? So let me be the kind of person I would like to have as a friend. Yeah, thank That's you. That's a very good go. way to put it, actually. Yes. Yeah. And, and what you guys have been saying, I'm, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about this because I've really been struggling with compassion lately. And we, ha- we had a meeting about it a week ago Friday. And... Um, it just seems to keep coming up lately. And I, you know, I think for me, the part that I struggle with and, and kind of like you were saying, Swetha, is that, you know, once that interaction starts to go in a negative direction, for me, all of my past experience with that person comes flooding back. You know, every harm that they've done to me, every bad thing that's happened, you know, every negative interaction and, and anything positive kind of goes flying out the window. And so, it makes it really difficult for me to have compassion for that person because all that's in the forefront of my mind is all this negative stuff, you know, all these bad things that have happened. It's really easy at that point for me to forego any sort of progress that they may have made on, on the subject that we're struggling with or just on anything. Yeah. I really like in the program, I don't know if it's officially written anywhere, but I've heard so many open talk speakers, so many people mention that it's, um, I'm sure it's written down somewhere, but, um, and help me out with this if I miss say, uh, miss, uh, quote it guys, but that it's really easy for us to look at our differences and say that we are different when we listen, especially, I think this was directed towards newcomers. Like when you come in, it's very easy for you to be like, that's not my story. That's not part mm-hmm. of my story. That's not part of my story and separate but that it's when we look for our similarities that we're able to find help, we're able to find serenity. And I think that trigger that's like compassion all over, not just compassion for other people. But in that in that situation, like when I came in to Alan, it was so, so easy for me to be like, This is not me at all. Why am I here? My God. And uh and feel like I was a sham that I was lying to all these people. And then I heard someone's story. And it's not even the whole, I couldn't even tell you what the whole story was. I just heard a part of his story. The rest of the time I was repeating this tape in my head of get the hell out of here before <laughs> they find out. Um, and something went through and I heard this part of the story. And and in that moment, I, I saw a similarity. And in that moment, I just had compassion for myself, I think. And I think compassion is just, yeah, it's it's not a one-way street. It doesn't 
when I'm having compassion for someone else, I'm having compassion for myself. It's it's unity. It's not being alone. Even when you're even when I'm angry and and arguing with a loved one or angry with a loved one, I'm so so have this huge tendency to just want to go it alone. I can do this by myself. I'm going to argue and I'm going to fight. I'm going to win this or I'm going to shut down and screw this person. And the second that compassion can come into it, and it does it never takes a second. It always takes like three phone calls and like a day, but. <laughs> Um, the, when it does come in, immediately there's not I, me versus them. It's we. And it's just like the program. At that point, I can see it more like like a meeting where I can say, it's us. We're doing this together. It's not that I have to make this happen. I can't make anything happen. We have to do this if this is a relationship between us. And uh, that's something that very recently I've been struggling with, too. And I mean, thank God for this episode. <laughs> Otherwise, none of this would surface. <laughs> so the the phrase I've heard is is identify, don't compare. Uh, okay. And I hear my loved one saying that to you know her sponsees a, a lot. <laughs> like, you're comparing yourself. Don't do that. Identify right. with what the other person says. Don't compare your differences. Identify your similarities. Right. And and I a- think that really is important mm-hmm. for us to be able to really use the program. Mm-hmm. If we spend, as you say, if you spend all your time saying, well, that's not me, mm-hmm. that's not me, that's not me, you get a lot less out of what people share in a meeting. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you can say, well, that piece is like me and that piece is like me, then you can hear what they're saying, you can hear their experience, you can hear maybe what tools they used or whatever it was that that might help me to you know, improve my own situation. Yeah. I like that you brought up the meeting aspect too, Spencer, because I think, you know, just sitting in meetings is a really great opportunity for me to practice compassion. You know, sometimes I'm in a meeting with someone that I don't particularly like or know very well, but, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm listening to their story and it's not an opportunity where I can really, you know, I can't fight back. In the middle of a meeting, that would be really awkward. Maybe there are meetings like that. I've never been to one. Um, but I don't think I'd want to go to one. No, I don't think so either. Doesn't doesn't sound like a very safe place anyway. And something that I think also was really helpful to me in um, in early recovery was to go to a lot of AA open talks because because I'm not an addict and I don't understand that mindset. I, I sort of came in with that stereotypical frame of mind of like, why don't they just stop drinking? Or, you know, if you loved me, you'd stop behaving this way or, you know, whatever these crazy thoughts are that we have. I mean, I feel like we've talked about this before, too, but sometimes I think it's so much more difficult to get the message from someone that you are emotionally attached to, you know, but I can sit in an AA open talk and listen to a complete stranger tell their story and they could have done the same destructive things that, you know, my alcoholic did, but, but I can hear it differently. You know, I can, I can recognize their behavior and why they did it and maybe the motivation behind it. And, you know, I can have sympathy and compassion for that person. You know, partially it's easier because I don't have to go home with them after the <laughs> meeting. <laughs> But but it 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 does help me understand the disease better and and to be able to feel compassion for people even though they do bad things. So Kelly, um, I was looking at 
How Al-Anon Works book this morning, and uh, and I found this section that actually I think connects very directly to what you were just saying. It says, mm-hmm. some of us attend open AA meetings to learn about the alcoholic's experience. Hearing the stories of recovering alcoholics can be very eye-opening. Few of us realize that the alcoholics in our lives often suffer terribly, sometimes even more than we do. More like that, sometimes even more than we do. (laughs) By listening, we can learn to distinguish the person from the disease, to have compassion for their efforts and their pain, and to recognize that they too are powerless over alcohol. And then it says, the more we know about the disease, the more likely we are to respond to alcoholic behavior with compassion, understanding that we are dealing with a person who is sick, rather than someone who is bad, weak, stupid, or cruel. And, and you know... <laughs> That's right. Okay. Ben and I are... Hey. <laughs> are you sure about that cruel one? Cause... <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, and it is difficult. I mean, that's, that's why it's not easy. It's simple, but not easy. Is that how it goes? Um, and, and I definitely, I mean, I had that experience... It took a while to have compassion for the struggle that my alcoholic was going through to really understand that it was not about me. It was not about, it was not something that, you know, if you really loved me, you'd stop, right? That my loved one was just as much not in control of her alcoholism as, as I was not in control of it. And I, I formed this mental picture of sort of her as a car hurtling down the highway out of control with her disease at the wheel and her sitting in the passenger seat or maybe in the back seat, screaming her head off. Hmm. That was, I think that was one of the, the tools that I used to really find compassion for the struggle that she had with the disease. That she wanted to stop drinking at least as much as I wanted her to stop drinking. And it took me a long time to really understand that and to really believe that. You know, as with everything, I wasn't perfect at that. I would take it back and say, why can't you just stop? Although I learned not to say that to her. I'd say that to myself or say it in a meeting um, where it's, you know, a safe place and it doesn't further poison the, the already strained relationship. I think the tricky piece about that too is that sometimes we're under the misconception that as soon as they get sober, um, we won't have that need for compassion anymore because they'll just suddenly become a regular human being. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's a struggle too. I, I think recognizing and knowing that that disease is always there, no matter how many meetings they go to, no matter how much they call their sponsor, no matter how much step work they do, you know, they will always be an alcoholic or an addict. And, and so that compassion piece is not something that we can, you know, master and check off the list and move on to the next topic. You know, it's, it's a constant process for me, at least. Now that you're not drinking, why are you still a jerk? Right. <laughs> exactly. You're not even drunk to explain it. Come right. on, dude. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, boy. I like that idea of meetings. I think bef- 
I think before meetings, I didn't know about safe interactions. I didn't think there was such a thing. And then when I went into a meeting and started sharing, I I liked that I could have a voice and I started practicing compassion, which I think, as we mentioned before, is a lot easier when you don't have to go home with that person. But something that is really hard for me that I didn't learn necessarily at meetings is how to go home with that person and still feel compassion. Because at the meeting, you're not, you don't, I mean, you can judge the other person if you really have nothing better to do um, <laughs> in a meeting. But um, for the most part, when I'm listening to other people's stories, I'm not like, that That person's crazy. I'm just thinking, well, that's, I did that last night. That's interesting. And uh, Identifying. <laughs> right? Yeah. But, but then I don't have to go home with that person and deal with that behavior. And I think that's where practicing compassion really, really helps me out because it, it's not necessarily safe when I go home. The person that I'm talking to pro- isn't necessarily going to just sit there and listen and then not crosstalk and not have an opinion on it. And um, <laughs> <laughs> Crosstalk at home. <laughs> <laughs> just You know, sometimes I think in our conversations with our loved ones, that's actually a good rule. No crosstalk. To, yeah, to yeah. not crosstalk, to, to it, hear what they say. Yeah. To say, I hear you. Mm-hmm. And to stop there. Yeah. Wow, yeah. Hard. <laughs> and it's been really, yeah, so that's something that we're actually, that I'm trying to do with one of my loved ones is set a timer and like, your turn to talk. All right, your two minutes is up. Hear the buzzer. You're done. <laughs> this is my turn now. <laughs> and, and just Arf. give each other a, well, hey, <laughs> sometimes I got to get a word in somewhere and sometimes right. so do they. Um, depending on the situation, but if that's, I mean, it's a, it's not like I'm just suddenly hitting a buzzer and going, eh, it times up. Surprise. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done hearing you. <laughs> exactly. We agree on it ahead of time. Um, but it's the, even, even with that, I'm aware of there being a more emotional investment there and, and buying into that, that fear of the other person's ego, uh, fear of my own, which is my own ego being fearful of the other person's ego rather than feeling the compassion and realizing that no matter what, they're still human and they're still doing most likely something very similar to what I'd be doing if I was in their shoes. Mm-hmm. And even if it's not similar, it's, it's okay. That's, I think, again, where I, th- I, we, I think earlier Kelly or maybe Spencer, I can't remember who was talking about building resentments and things like that. Um, or something similar. It may have been just what I heard. <laughs> um, there you go, identifying it. Yep. And um, I don't have resentments. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and uh, that's where, and I mean, I can, even sometimes, I, I think, I mean, we talk about detaching with love, and I think that is another phrase for compassion. But sometimes I detach with with anger, with interest. <laughs> and I'll detach like in the moment and shut down and walk away. And I just, every step I take, I'm like that jerk. They just, what the hell is wrong with that person? And then I'll come into a meeting, not to say that it's not okay to do that, but I'll come into a meeting and I'm not having compassion for them. I come in and I meant because I didn't ever actually detach with love or I'll criticize them um, to friends or something like that, or judge what they're doing or um, just li- different things like that, little different things, not really not really seeking, not solution seeking, but more venting, more um, criticizing. And it's not, it's hardly, I can, and I can tell I'm not, it, I think the point I'm trying to get out of here is compassion doesn't stop for me, it shouldn't stop for me just after I leave the interaction with that person. Mm-hmm. That compassion carries, should be carried through, for me, 
to all aspects of my, wherever I am, I can feel compassion for people, whether or not they're in the room, whether or not I'm talking to them, whether or not they're alive or dead at that moment. It's, um, it's just, yeah. And this, when I can do that, I'm so, so much better at my program because I'm not so worried about the other person. The other person's human, just like me. The other person is flawed, just like me. They'll take care of their stuff, but I, I need to address my own stuff. And when I can feel compassion for another person, I'm not, and I'm trying to work on my, I'm able to work on my own stuff a lot better because I'm not sitting there feeling like they're so much better than me or they're so much worse than me or, or anything like that. We're all people with problems, just different problems. Yeah. It's, it's like saying a student that's really, really good at math and really, really sucks at history is uh, better than a student that's really, really good at history and really, really sucks at math. They just, you know, two different students, they're just students. They both have their strengths and weaknesses. And, um, and I find myself like knowing that my compassion is at an all time low when I walk away and I'm like, Oh, that person has blah, blah, blah issues. And why don't they just blah, blah, blah. And, um, and I think I'm having you know, compassion. Why don't they just, why don't they know. just, the yeah, phrase. that's a signal. Yeah. Or even like speaking in a critical derogatory manner as, as a, I mean, I do that as a joke sometimes and I don't even realize that it's all this negative stuff that's coming out sideways. Mm. And, and that's not compassionate. It's not compassionate to make someone fun of someone's weaknesses. Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, rationally right now I can wrap my head around how that's mean, but ask me again in an hour when I'm really pissed off <laughs> and I'd be like, let me tell you this person. <laughs> but that's, I think ideally that's what I would feel compassion is. That's how I'd want to be treated. I wouldn't want my loved ones to go away and be like, ah, oh, Swetha, she does not walk her dog long enough in the morning. That woman, they, they need to, they need to take that dog away from her. You know, it's just, yeah. Yeah. That's how I th what I think. What about you guys? You know, I think I'd like to read this email we got from Ruth. Mm -hmm. um, she says, Hey guys, I would like to share my thoughts, experience, strength, and hope in regard to the topic compassion. First, I checked in the dictionary to be sure I have the right understanding of the word compassion. What appears are two words which have different meanings. Literally translated, it is with feeling and with suffering or pity, which is no surprise for me because people who have never really reflected about these words in German just use the words as synonyms. Then I checked the indices of my German Alanon literature and didn't find the word for pity once. This is very interesting. <laughs> for me, making the difference between pity and compassion is important too. When I pity someone, I may suffer from that feeling, and I would be very likely trying to get rid of that by trying to fix the situation. I would provoke all the odds coming along with that when we try to fix or control a situation. Getting rid of the pain of suffering from another person's situation is mostly my own very selfish motivation to interfere. I often suffer from pity when I see people who are living on the street. Sometimes I can't convince myself that I help by donating a coin or two and I may try to avoid them. But once I saw a report on TV about kids who are living in the streets of Brazil, they were asked, what is your major disadvantage? They didn't say it is hunger, having no bed to sleep in, or the exposure to violence. They said that it is that people avoid looking at us. It makes us feel as if we do not exist anymore. Since then, when I donate, I also look into the eyes of the people with a smile, and I sometimes exchange some words when I feel capable to do that. This example with the kids in Brazil reminds me that I may not know what the other person most needs or misses. There is something between pitying and just turning away. This something may be compassion. For me, compassion is understanding and respect. This works for other people as well as myself. 
Listen open and honestly to another person. Let them have the dignity to make their own choices, the pride to handle their issues, learning to reach out and determine when and how. For me, making my inventory, forgive myself when I struggle and progress in the time I need or my higher power decides is appropriate. One of the very first things I learned when I was new to the program was to stop pitying myself. From that very moment onwards, the days had been brighter than ever before. The relief I got from that was so tremendous that I have never lost this insight in any relapse. But I'm still struggling a lot with compassion for myself and pity for others. At those moments, I'm happy when the serenity prayer comes to my mind. Thanks for letting me share. Take what you like and leave the rest. A grateful member of Al-Anon, Ruth. And, uh, you know, the thing that really struck me in, in her her note here is the the one about not seeing the other person as a person. And, and it's so, it's, you know, it's such a simple physical example that she's got there. Like, and I do this, I know this. I walk down the street and there's the homeless guy, you know, sitting on the edge of the sidewalk with a sign and I just, I'm eyes forward, not looking, walking right past. And, and as I walk past, he says, have a nice day. And I think, I don't know. I mean, I, I get this sort of, feeling of being not human in that moment that I am just ignoring this other person because it makes me uncomfortable to see him there. Because if I acknowledge him, I acknowledge his pain and if I'm not going to do do anything for him, and I think this is part of it, if I'm not going to do anything for him, then by ignoring him, I can deny that I'm not doing anything. But what Ruth says here is that by ignoring him, I'm harming him. And, and I don't really know in my own life with the homeless people on the street where to take that, but I, I do know what that says in my interactions with the sometimes annoying loved ones in my life. Uh, that I need to recognize their humanity. I need to treat them as people. Whether or not I understand their motivations, whether or not I understand where they're coming from, whether or not I agree with that, they still deserve the honor of being human. I'm, I'm now thinking too, you know, especially because I drive a lot. I tend to see the people who are hanging out like on the expressway exit ramps, you know, looking looking for money and... And I, and it's the same thing. You know, I, I do that. I avoid making eye contact because I know if I make eye contact, they're going to start walking towards the car because they think that I'm going to give them something. Um, you know, but I, but what it's making me think be, I guess, become aware of is that my misconception is that they are a faulty person, you know, that there's something wrong with them and why don't they just get a job, you know? And, and it's kind of the same way as thinking like, why doesn't the alcoholic just have enough willpower to stop drinking, you know, or stop being an asshole or whatever it is that they're doing. <laughs> um, I sense a theme here. So today. The, this is an, definitely an interesting twist, but what I really liked is that Ruth brought about the idea of, um, you know, she mentioned that she's struggling a lot with having compassion for herself. And, um, you know, that hasn't, that's something that's, that's on our list of questions, but that we haven't really touched on yet, <laughs> probably because, 
it's such a struggle to have compassion for others. I, have, I, I don't even think about myself first in most equations, so I'm sure it's the same for compassion. But um. Kelly, didn't you have a quote about, or maybe it was a reading that said something about, in order to find compassion for others, I need to have compassion for myself first? Someone said that, I think, in a meeting the other day. Okay. I just remembered it, and I didn't didn't remember where it came from. Yeah, I'd love to take credit for that, but I don't think it was really... <laughs> well, no, you commented on it anyway. You're right. No, someone mentioned that um, Wednesday night at the meeting. Yeah. God, this compassion is coming up all over the place. It's ridiculous. High power moment. I know, right? <laughs> Jeez, get out of my head, high power. Um, yeah, no, that, that I'm glad you remembered that, because I took notes on it, and then I don't know where my notes are. <laughs> Are they on your phone? Yeah, they're on my phone. Right. Um, Spencer, while Kelly's looking that up, I, one of the things I was thinking about when I heard your story about walking by homeless people and that man was said, have a nice day. I, I actually have no idea the tone of his voice. He might have just been like, have a nice day or something. But. You know, usually it sounds sincere. Yeah. It and really is amazing and, and I, well, it makes me feel really small sometimes. You know? Well, I was, that's what I was thinking was that it sounds like, I mean... In that moment, it sounds like he had compassion for you. And it's interesting that, I mean, I think that when people have compassion for me in those moments, it's it's really easy for my self-esteem to just be like, oh, I don't deserve it. <laughs> um, I just was such a jerk or something like that. But I, I think it's, I think when people have compassion for me, it's really, I'm trying to be more appreciative and be able to be in a place to receive that because it gives me a chance to forgive myself and helps me realize that I'm, I'm, I'm human too, that I don't have to be perfect, that I can, I can be a jerk too. And that's okay. I mean, it's not okay. Like, I'm, not, I'm not good to go being a total <laughs> asshole, but I mean, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay that sometimes I'm not always the perfect ideal human being, or most of the time, never. I'm never the perfect ideal human being. <laughs> And that compassion from other people just kind of gives me permission, I think, to 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 be that way, and reminds me to have it for myself. So when you when you said that about um, about uh, that, that man saying, you know, have a nice day, it just I, I just thought was I thought that was really nice, really wonderful, actually. Yeah, it feels like a higher power moment, like a chance for you to forgive yourself. Also, a chance mm. for you to realize you're human, like your higher power reaching out to you through this person that you feel that you've wronged yeah well and and the interesting i mean i have particular reasons why i generally don't give money to people on the street based on talking to people who used to live on the street Mm -hmm. and you know what they would use the money for right and and i prefer to make my donations elsewhere Mm -hmm. uh, to people who are providing help but it still doesn't it still feels Awkward at times. Yeah. Awkward is not quite the word I want, but I think it's uncomfortable. <laughs> these um, examples that you had, Spencer, and the one from Ruth, too, are really making me think about black and white thinking. You know, in those situations, when I see someone that's asking for help on the street, the thought never occurred to me that I could look them in the eye and say, I can't help you or I don't, I don't have anything for you or just smile or something. You know, it's, it's like, I feel like I have two choices. Either I have to give them something or I just have to, you know, put my blinders on and pretend I don't see them. 
And, um, you know, it, it does sound like what we're all kind of coming to is this idea that compassion resides somewhere in the middle there, you know, that it's in that gray area that is generally a struggle to find. Oh, that gray area. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we have another email um, from uh, Maureen, mm-hmm. which it sort of feeds into this question about who do we have difficulty finding compassion for? What do you guys want to read that? From Maureen, she says, I just discovered your show and love it. When I first came into the program, I didn't know how angry I was. Once I accepted I had a reason to be angry at my alcoholic, the rage poured out of me, and its intensity often scared me. I was in recovery two years when I attended an Al-Anon convention. One of the meetings was on compassion. I stood up in a room full of strangers, burst into tears, and confessed that I didn't think I would ever feel compassion for this person. Once I admitted that fact openly, the thaw in my heart started. It took two more years to come close to what it feels like, compassion, and sometimes old anger pops up. But compassion is there, too. Thank you for your show, Maureen R. Thanks, Maureen. And and I just want to note here the, the power of step five in this process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're only as sick as our secrets. And uh, But I can really identify with those feelings. Mm-hmm. I was... I was really angry. Um, I was full of rage, as we've talked about, even though you can't believe it. <laughs> and uh, my rage came pouring out before I found the program. Um, when I, after I found the program, I think I had a safer place mm. and, and mm-hmm. was able to do it a little less loudly, shall we say. <laughs> but it did take, it did take years. I don't know really. I I date sort of two years from coming into the program to being able to that that moment that I think I've described previously when I was able to fully detach with love mm-hmm. um, uh, from my loved one uh, in her disease and finding compassion for her me finding compassion for her was, I think, essential to me being able to forgive her actions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Understanding that that her actions came from a place of sickness and pain. And, and, And as I said, compassion for me is an understanding in the heart rather than just an understanding in the head. Mm -hmm. And that, that always takes me longer to get to. You know, I can go to a few open AA meetings and say, wow, um, you know, this really is a disease because all these people, they're so different and they all have the same arc of their story. And, but to really feel that, especially about somebody who's important in my life, took, take a lot, takes a lot longer. And I know we've, I think we talked, did we talk about forgiveness? Have we talked about forgiveness? Yeah, we should do a show on forgiveness if we haven't. Um, I don't think so. It's on the list, I think. It's on the list. Oh, it's definitely on the list. It's a huge one. Because for me, forgiveness was really essential to my recovery. Because I had to let go of the anger and the resentments and the pain of the past. Because the past doesn't change. Um, But I could not reach that forgiveness without compassion. I really liked in, in Maureen's email that she said that it took her two years to go through the anger. That was, I think, really good because it thought, it thought it, she had, you have to have compassion. For, I mean, I, I would have to have compassion for myself 
to go through go through an entire emotion that we're quote unquote not supposed to have and and give myself permission to feel all that before getting to the rest of it. And it's kind of like you were saying, Spencer, you're, we're only as sick as your, our secrets. Um, secrets, another awesome way to separate yourself from people rather than saying I'm human and you're human and here are my secrets and and that's that. And that she gave herself all of that, the permission to feel those feelings. I, yeah, I'm, I have a lot of, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of rage. Well, yeah, a lot of rage and, um, and giving myself permission to feel that I'm still working through giving myself permission to have, have anger against people and, and kind of what you were mentioning, Kelly, like until I can give myself permission to have anger and have all these feelings and realize that just because I'm angry, just because I'm angry at someone doesn't mean I'm an angry person or a bad person just means I'm angry and, and forgive myself for that. And fourth and fifth steps, people, fourth and fifth steps, um, and, and be angry and forgive myself for all of that. I have no way whatsoever of forgiving the other person for their behavior at all. Uh, I mean, yeah, I have no way of forgiving other people because I'm still holding on to all the feelings that, that came with that. I think we definitely need to schedule a, a show on forgiveness. Right after yeah. anger? <laughs> <laughs> wow, do we want to do a whole show on anger? Mm. We're gonna need a Yikes. couple, couple. That's two parter. <laughs> <laughs> Anger and forgiveness, part one. Um, that'll be a four parter. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh man, how about you, Kelly? Oh, uh, I, I like. Um, well, I, something that struck me as you were talking, Swetha, is this idea that giving ourselves permission to be angry. And I think sometimes I think that I have compassion for someone. And then they trigger me. And sometimes I'm still working through some of that anger from, you know, 8, 10, 15 years ago. I mean, there's there was a long period of time where I did not have permission to have feelings. And so now that I've given myself that permission, sometimes, you know, the person that that anger is directed towards gets, you know, several years worth of anger, not just <laughs> in the moment anger. Um and the other thing that I was thinking about, Spencer, something that you said, you know, I, for me, a lot of times I feel like there is this disconnect in program concepts that you were talking about going to AA meetings and really, um, you know, understanding what people are saying. I think sometimes for me, there's a piece where I can intellectually, I understand a concept, a program concept. You know, I, I get compassion. I understand what it is. I just don't want to do it. <laughs> there are certain times when I just feel like, you know, the other emotions are too strong and I, I can't figure out how to make that fit. I, I don't want to do it. Sounds like justification to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, we're actually, um, coming up on an hour here. Um, and there's a couple of questions here that we've sort of addressed. Mm -hmm. Um, but I just want to ask them directly. Um, how and when do you struggle with finding compassion for another person? Why, with whom? Um, and how has compassion helped you to live or coexist or deal with the alcoholics or addicts in your life? Do we have another hour? <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say, each of those questions is like yeah, a program yeah. episode in itself, or a podcast episode in itself. And, and I feel like, to some extent, I already talked about that second one in my experience, so maybe I'll mm -hmm. ask um, you guys about your experience there if you have anything to add 
you know, something you said, Swetha, earlier about the idea of uh, how and when you struggle to find compassion. You said something something to the effect of, and I don't remember it now, but I, I was thinking about it earlier, something about, you know, when they trigger your fear or your insecurities, mm-hmm. you know, that, that for me is key. You know, anytime those are like those open nerves that, you know, as soon as someone's verbal assault even comes close to, you know, my fear or my insecurities, those are the moments when I struggle to have compassion because it's just, I'm feeling so exposed and unprotected that it's hard to give myself permission in that moment to be kind to somebody else, (laughs) you know, when they're, when they're poking me with a stick. So, um, yeah, it's, I I don't know if that's how you meant it, but that's what I heard, you know, Mm -hmm. that in those moments of fear and insecurity, that's mostly when I struggle. Sort of the fight or flight situation. Sure. Yeah. And with whom? I mean, it doesn't really matter. (laughs) Anybody who triggers that will will feel the effects. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think for me, it's uh, I struggle to find compassion for two pe- two sets of people, two whole groups of people. One is people that that I am emotionally enmeshed with, like people in my life, um, loved ones. The other is I find have struggle. I struggle finding compassion for people that um, get this, guys. People that I see my own flaws in. So mm. <laughs> I identify. Oh yeah, <laughs> boy, do I identify. But I'm like that person's fucked up. That one right there that's just like me that does the exact same things that I do. And I think that that's a twofold thing. One is that I have I struggle finding compassion for myself, so I can't find compassion for those people that are like me. Mm-hmm. And then if I can't find compassion for myself, I have no basis on which to find compassion for another person that's nothing like me. I, I think that it, when I see, it kind of relates to your idea, Kelly, or what I heard you say a second ago about open nerves. When I see people with my with flaws that I think are very similar to mine, those feel like open nerves that I have no control over additionally because they're another person. And so if anything, any interaction goes on with that other person, I'm judging what they're doing and I'm criticizing them because I'm criticizing me. And that's something I'm working on and getting a lot better at. But the the second part of that, finding compassion for people that I don't relate with at all, no matter how hard I try to wrap my head around it, that one's really scary for me. I I think I think I see them as going back to your poking example. I think <laughs> I see an interaction with those people as poking a bear and just mm. keeping on poking and poking and poking if I talk to this bear. And um in my head, I was like I am so good at like warping program slogans and program ideas to suit my needs, right? <laughs> so, I would tell myself, "Oh, it's acceptance. It's so it's acceptance that um I don't poke them so th- because if I poke them and they get mad, then I only have myself to blame. And so I don't need to poke them. That's detaching with love, right? No. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, I think there it goes back to the egos and for me and, and such and seeing them as a bear, seeing them as this like really big bear and me as this tiny, teeny little person. And so I can't have turning them into a monster. I can't have compassion for a bear. I have no idea how a bear thinks. <laughs> All I think is a bear is going to eat me. And I think the way that I fix that illusion is realizing that I'm 
the exact same size and they're not either they're not a bear or I'm just as much of a bear as they are mm. and and realizing that it's a level playing field that's that's when it's easiest for me to find compassion and I think Spencer you mentioned this before that when I could this idea that if I can find compassion for someone else it's I can Im immediately find compassion for myself um it's it, it's never a one-way street for me. If I can find compassion for someone else being human, that's for me is admitting that I'm human too and saying that we're both equal, we're both human, and that's okay. Um, otherwise, it's just all-around judgment, equal opportunity judgment for me and the other person. <laughs> yeah. So, um, closing thoughts? All right. I've got a, another short reading from uh, Tattoos on the Heart. Mm -hmm. He writes, uh, Pema Chodron an ordained Buddhist nun, writes of compassion and suggests that its tru truest measure lies not in our service of those on the margins, but in our willingness to see ourselves in kinship with them. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know if I have any closing thoughts. I guess uh, progress, not perfection. That's a really good one. I feel like an attempt at compassion is better than nothing. I guess my closing thoughts is as much as it's easy for me to think that I'm in a different place in my life than someone else, that I'm on a better something path than someone who's not in recovery or who even who is in recovery. I think it's compassion comes easier when I realize that we're all exactly on the same point in all of our recovery paths, whether or not we're in a program, we're exactly where we need to be. And uh, I am not the judge of that. And that's how I can have compassion. Mm. Today's reminder is I will spend more time with myself in this lifetime than anyone else. Let me learn to be the kind of person that I would like to have as a friend. And after a short break, we'll be back with our lives in recovery, where we talk about the meetings we attend and what's happening in our lives. And uh, the next song is Black Balloon by Goo Goo Dolls. There's a line in here that says, it says, you were the same as me, but on your knees. And that, that struck me as compassion all over, realizing that the similarities, even if in, inwardly, the humanity, even if outwardly, the ego was a lot different. So here it is. Baby's black balloon makes a fly Almost fell into that hole in your life You're not thinking about tomorrow Cause you were the same as me The world's been beneath you 
In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, what's happening in our meetings and, and in our lives. Spencer? So it has been um, a really full week for me uh, in terms of uh, sort of my recovery activities, I guess. I don't know. On Monday, we did uh, our joint uh, sponsorship roundtable with the Recovered Podcast, which you can find also the Recovered Podcast at uh, recoveredcast.com. That was a really uh, that was a really great experience. I think uh, six of us, uh, sort of three of us and three from from uh, recovered, sitting around a table talking about sponsorship, and we got a lot of different perspectives and also a lot of overlap, which is sort of great to hear. Last Sunday, I went to a meeting, and the topic there was about guilt and amends, and it talked about the reading that we that we read. It was from Courage to Change for July Fourteenth. Talked about feeling guilty over actions that the person had done to somebody who was no longer living and and then talked about the only way to really make amends there was to change the behavior that had led to those actions. And I shared about making living amends to my children for the way that my, in particular, I think my anger, my rage spilled out on, on them before I found the program. And that, you know, I can't go back and change it. I can say I'm sorry, which I have said but that the only really way, the only real way to make amends is to change the behavior there. On Wednesday morning, so here in, in Ann Arbor, um, this time of year we have an annual art fair, and it's a huge thing. It shuts down many streets in the city while artists set up booths, and, and it's always really hot weather too, which is you know, one of those things. But So Wednesday morning I was walking to work, and I was walking through the not-quite-open uh, art fair uh, section, and uh, and I was listening to a podcast of This American Life, and, and in this episode, they were going back and revisiting various producers' favorite episodes from the past 499 episodes. Wow, we should ever get there. Sounds like recovered. Close, <laughs> close. And this one was introduced, this segment, which was the last one on the show, was introduced by the producer saying, you know, a lot of people tell me they listen to our show and they cry, and I never cry except this one. This one makes me cry every time I listen to it. I'm not sure I can get through this without crying myself. And the episode was about a theater program at a juvenile detention center. Doesn't sound like something you're going to cry about, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> and the particular thing they focused on was a, a musical put on by these girls in the juvenile detention center for their families, who was mostly mothers and grandmothers. And so there was a musical about this girl and, you know, how she got in trouble and, and ended up in the detention center. And at the end, they all came out, stood in a line. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and they started singing, I'm sorry, Mama. I'm sorry for what I've done. And in this song, they talked about, or they sang about the specific things that their mothers had done for them as a consequence of, of, of their actions. And I'm walking down the street, and tears are streaming down my face, and I could just, you know, be thankful that it was really hot, and I could pretend I was sweating. <laughs> and it got worse. It got worse because every one of these girls had a little red paper heart that they cut out and wrote, I'm sorry on it. And they took it into the audience and gave it to their mother. 
And what I saw there was these girls making amends to their mothers, direct amends in public. And, and at that moment, I could visualize myself making some really important amends to a person who's very important in my life and for whom I have not been able to f consider being ready to make those amends. And I could visualize myself saying to her what I was going to do. And then later I wasn't sure, but <laughs> I felt that I felt like that was a really a huge step forward for me because this was, this was a, somebody that I know I have to make amends to. And then it just wasn't seeming possible for me to do it. And, and so, you know, walking down the street, crying in public brought me to that place, brought me to that place. Wednesday evening, went to a meeting and the topic was fear. And, you know, I've been working through a lot of anxieties in the last few weeks and, and didn't really feel I had anything sort of positive to share. And so I was just going to shut up, which is really unusual for me. I always talk in meetings, go, go figure. Until um, a person shared about, you know, his fear of uh, being unworthy, of being unliked. And I realized, you know, I've talked a lot about my fear of financial insecurity, but I realized that really my, my deepest, longest held fear is that people don't really like me, that they're just pretending and that I'm going to screw up and they're going to kick me out. They're going to kick me out of their life. And I, that goes, that goes back as far as I can remember. I don't ever remember not having this fear. So I just said that, um, you know, step five, open that up. Maybe it'll start to heal. That's what I've got. Thanks. Kelly? Man, we should have had Spencer go last. I know, right? I don't At least know, I'm I don't not know. following him, so that's <laughs> all you do. Hey, no? if you want, we can rearrange it so I go last, okay? <laughs> okay. So, um, let's see. So uh, Spencer was kind enough to let me borrow his courage to change. Um, and I wanted to just talk about that meeting that I was at that I referenced earlier in the podcast um, last Friday. It was a reading from Courage to Change. And the top was topic was actually about Tradition 5 and how it talks about encouraging and understanding our alcoholic relatives. And it does go on to talk about having compassion for people who have the disease. Um, and, and there were a lot of great shares. And so I, I felt compelled to talk about um, a young relative that I have who is struggling with um, with alcoholism and addiction. And, um, you know, how I felt like this idea of sticking with the winners in the program has sort of done me a disservice because the majority of the people that I know in recovery have long-term sobriety, you know, like 10 plus years. So I'm not really used to, you know, having to deal with constant relapses or, um, you know, pe people 
chronic relapsers, you know, people who, who keep falling off. And, um, and so it, it's been especially tough in this circumstance because it's someone who's close to me, you know, I mean, my, uh, my partner has sponsees who relapse all the time, you know, which is, um, not a big deal to me because I'm not emotionally invested in those people. You know, I mean, I know them, but, but I can have a little bit more, um, understanding of that situation, I guess. So I was kind of in line with the topic today, you know, it's been tough to have compassion for this person that I feel like should be able to just get it, be able to get sobriety like everyone else I know. Um, And, you know, I don't know how realistic that is, obviously. So I'm going to keep working on that. Also went to the fear meeting and that was really great as well. Um, You know, I mean, fear is one of those constant topics that I'm working on. <laughs> one of those defects that has definitely not been removed. And I don't know if it ever will, but, um, you know, I'll keep plugging away at it. But didn't share at that meeting, but there were a lot of um, great things said that I heard and was able to take away from it. And, and that was kind of where I got that piece that someone mentioned earlier about not being able to have compassion for others until you have compassion for yourself. And someone also uh, mentioned something uh, that they want others to behave a certain way so they can feel better. And definitely took that away from the meeting, too. <laughs> I can totally relate to that idea. Yeah, I, I think that I've mastered that idea of not needing to get my needs met by others until someone says something like that. And then I'm like, shit, nope, <laughs> I'm still working on that one, too, I guess. Aren't we all? Uh, and then um, also went to a meeting recently on Tradition 7, which was also really great. Um, the meeting that I go to has a really nice ability to connect the traditions to things that are happening in their life and whether it's work or their family. You know, when I when I first found out that the traditions were going to be a regular part of that meeting. I was not very excited about it because I knew nothing about the traditions and I thought it was going to suck and they were going to be horrible and difficult. And I already had a hard enough time sharing as it is, let alone about topics I know nothing about. Um, but as per usual, uh, the longer I work with something, the easier it gets, right? That's pretty standard. And um, yeah, it was just a, it was a great meeting and it was hotter than Hades in that room. <laughs> But it was still one of the best meetings I've been to in a while, so I'm glad I made it. Swetha? Um, I did not make it to the meeting on fear. I'm kind of regretting that now because it sounds like it was awesome. And also I'm scared of everything, so that would have really helped. (laughs) I went to the seventh tradition meeting, and like you were mentioning, Kelly, that a lot of people associate the tradition with what goes on in their lives. And... Um, it really, yeah, it really hit home for me. Do we need to read what the seventh tradition is for people? All, your group should be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. That's not word for word, but yeah. thank you. I should have mentioned that. Sorry. No, it's, it was tied into what I was going to say next. I was like, crap, what if they don't know? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So that tradition is, was really, really useful for my life. I'm really great about not contributing emotionally to anything at all ever. Um, Very black and white, I know. (laughs) Um, I'm really, uh, when it comes to interactions with people, I, as soon as they get uncomfortable, I'm just, I just shut down and I don't want to be part of it. 
And so this tradition, when I was hearing people share about it, I was just like, oh, fuck, now I have to work on it because now I know. <laughs> and um, I can't dupe myself or be in denial about it any longer. Um, and actually, recently I had, this was actually part of my recovery. I had a, a really stressful conflict with someone I really love. And I did my standard uh, dance of shutting down utterly and let the other person take over, contributed entirely to the conversation by themselves without me having any contribution to it at all, um, regardless of how much they asked. And uh, I felt really unhappy and uh, unhappy about what was going on. And uh, they went away to a meeting and they came back and they shared with me about how this meeting affected them and what they learned. And it was funny, they had no concept of the fact that I felt the exact same way about my interaction with them. And they were talking about their interaction with someone completely unrelated. And they, they told, told me my story. They told me my feelings without realizing at all that I felt that way. And compassion <laughs> fell in line there, like spot on. I was like, this person understands. They don't know they understand. But they do understand, and immediately I was able to let go and forgive. And I think hearing them talk about their own feelings in that situation felt like, even if it was unconscious, um, compassion for me. And it helped me be more forgiving towards myself and feel those feelings as well. And more compassionate toward the other person, knowing that they too are human. They have to be human. <laughs> they did the exact same thing I did. So how could we not? How could we be different? Mm -hmm. And um, it was it was just wonderful. And we still haven't actually had a conversation where I haven't shut down. But I'm working on it. It'll happen eventually. <laughs> um, so our topic next week will be self care. This was a topic that was suggested to us from Holly. Um, thank you, Holly. She. She wrote in her request, the topic I would like to add to your list is self-care. You mentioned it in episode 30, Program in the Workplace, and I'd like to hear more about that. Um, you can, of course, suggest topics just like Holly. We welcome your thoughts. You can join our conversation. Please leave a voicemail or send us an email with your experience or questions about self-care or about another topic if you'd like us to cover that topic as well. Kelly, how can people send us feedback? Well, they can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Just put the podcast on pause and join the conversation at 734-707-8795. And you can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at com. And we'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of compassion or next week's topic of self-care. And if you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, just let us know. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? Well, our website, therecoveryshow.com, has all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, a blog with daily meditations, links to the music we play. And we've also got a few links to other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. There are many ways you can contribute to the content of the podcast and the website. You can leave comments, uh, take a look at our suggested topic list, and if you see a topic you'd like covered, you can leave a comment there to vote it up, or you can send us an email. And if you don't see the topic you're interested in, uh, let us know, and we'll get right on it, as we did with both Program in the Workplace and Self-Care. Mm -hmm. Both of those were topics that really weren't on the list, and, and we added them in response to your suggestions. We're always looking for music suggestions, and we've been getting a lot of them recently. We thank you for those. Um, I really love um, getting other people's uh, suggestions because, you know, I have a particular musical mm -hmm. sort of 
area of familiarity. And, and even between the three of us, we, we don't cover the, the spectrum. And so it's great to hear from you guys and, and bringing new, new things to our attention. Yeah. And uh, so just, just hop on over to the recovery show.com and, and enter the conversation there. And, um, we do have uh, voicemails, emails, or comments this week, but we're going to take a break before that, and we're going to listen to Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. To me, this is a sort of song of universal compassion. The singer is saying, I feel you, we've all been there. Here's a little bit of the lyric. When you're sure you've had enough of this life, well, hang on. Don't let yourself go, because everybody cries, and everybody hurts sometimes. When your day is long So we have some listener feedback. Uh, Kelly, do you want to start? Sure. We got, uh, let's see, Patty says, uh, what an amazing resource for my recovery journey. So blessed by what you are doing. Love the website and love the podcast. Thanks for everything. Thanks, Patty. And here's an older one from Eleanor that we uh, hadn't read, I think. Uh, this was her suggestion and why we ended up doing a program in the workplace. She says, a show on program in the workplace would be so helpful. I've been leading a nonprofit and became a mother last year. 
Other people's expectations of me have been overwhelming as I navigated new life as a part-time working mother. I've disappointed others because of my choices and boundaries so I could take care of my son in the way I felt was important. In an Al-Anon meeting last weekend on being only as sick as our secrets, I realized that my secret is I've prioritized my son over work this year. I'm proud of that, but it has caused much stress at work. My integrity was really compromised trying to fit this job to my new life, like the reading about zipping myself into a jacket that no longer fits. I've been praying madly for knowledge of God's will for me and my family's life and the power to carry it out. Listening to the Easy Does It recording today helped me because I've been trying to force solutions. Okay, and our next one is from Carla. She writes, Hi, family of choice. I subscribe to Mindful.com's Mindful Interrupters to get them by email. I found today's really helpful. Check it out. You can click on the title, Check Your Lenses to be redirected to the source. It says, Next time you detect yourself falling into an old familiar pattern, stop. Notice thoughts and feelings. Let them pass. Love you all. Peace. Carla. Thanks so much, Carla. I really love that family of choice. Yeah. <laughs> Kelly, do you want to read the next one? You know, I um, I just want to comment on Carla's oh, email, too. I, I just like that, that she points out that it's important to recognize the feelings, mm-hmm. but not let them take control, which is really hard sometimes. I think we talked about that, too, in our compassion episode. Someone was, I think Kelly was mentioning that that's compassion as well for yourself. Yeah, it's really nice. So we also got an email from Hillary. And Hillary says, how about doing something on how introverts work in the program? I could use some help in this. In Al-Anon, we are all encouraged to share at meetings and to stay afterwards and talk to people. But I feel that this is a very extroverted idea. Sometimes I think Al-Anon was set up for extroverts and either excludes introverts or wants them to change. This is how society in the U.S. views introversion and how introverts are treated in the workplace and schools, etc. as well. It's nothing new. I am both introverted and shy. Those are two separate things. Introverts recharge slash gain energy by being alone. Extroverts need to be with people to recharge. Shy people are socially awkward. I don't feel comfortable around people and this makes me shy. I prefer to spend time with one person instead of many. And we don't even have to talk much. This makes me an introvert. So, as a shy introvert, I prefer to be around people one-on-one or in small groups. I don't really care to share in large meetings and often don't find the time to, as everyone else usually jumps right in. I do like to listen and often have something to say, but I find it hard to approach people after meetings. I don't even need to speak to whoever spoke, just anyone with two ears that I'm comfortable around or one ear, or can read sign language in letters only. (laughs) Also, I express myself best in writing. The phone list doesn't work very well for me because I need to see the person I'm talking to. This helps me understand them. Speech is only one part of language. Our bodies talk too. Writing actually seems to be the clearest form of communication for me. Anyway, maybe y'all can do a podcast on how introverts work in the program. Please don't leave it at... Just do it. I have been told that most of my life, and it still hasn't worked. And it actually makes me quite angry when I'm not being accepted as who I am, but asked to be an extrovert instead. But if you do have any ideas, or prefer, or preferably no introverts who are working the program and have experience to share, I think it would be beneficial to a lot of people in a podcast. We're everywhere. We're the silent people sneaking in the back. Wahaha. Okay, that was weird. <laughs> well, thank you, Hillary. 
and and I think we are planning to to do such a show. Um, and we, well, I'm not an introvert. I think that's probably obvious. <laughs> um, and we really would like to hear from those of you who are how you work your program. Um, I think Hillary would love to hear from you. I'm an introvert. <laughs> Actually, wow! Yeah, <laughs> wow! Who knew? Um, really? <laughs> I thought it was so obvious. I don't know if you were being sarcastic there, Spencer. <laughs> uh, no, actually not. Oh. Okay. Um, well, okay. So we've got a little more represented here in the in the in the room than I thought we did. Yeah. Um, but still, um, we'd love to hear your your input. Yes. And thanks, Hillary. And and thank, thank you. you very much, Hillary. And and it's a really good point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so this is um, from Ruth. Uh, she's responding to, I think we, uh, we asked, hey, you know, how are we doing? We talked about um, we were going to have a group conscience, and she writes in respect to that to some extent. She says, thank you so much. You are awesome. This podcast is an important part of my recovery, my daily company. Keep going, and so on. There are small things I love, like if the recording is starting in the middle of someone's sentence. First, I thought that I may have accidentally pushed the fast-forward button, so I checked because I don't want to miss out on one second. After being assured that I didn't miss anything, it makes me feel like I'm coming into a room where the hosts are already gathered around the table just waiting for me until they start with the official introduction. I like the structure, that the structure stays the same, and that the structure is continuously communicated, who you are, what you will talk about, and so on. I like the music breaks and the explanation of connection at the topic. Having different hosts and rotating the hosts, co-hosts, and guests makes it very vivid and gives me the feeling that everyone could be part of it. Absolutely, Ruth. Ruth. How can our listeners contribute to the recovery show? Big smile. A very interesting part is the reading of emails, forum posts, and playing mailbox recordings from other listeners who become participants. For me, it is the perfect, yes, perfect mixture of content. Wow. Okay. Which is funny because we always are concerned that the section of reading of emails and stuff is too long. So I'm glad to know that Ruth really likes Mm -hmm. it. What the heck does it mean when you say you can put the podcast on pause now? (laughs) Is this directed to any live listeners? Can't you call anytime or use a voicemail button on the webpage? And, and absolutely, Ruth. And I responded to Ruth by email. Um, the idea is you're listening to the podcast. You think about something you want to say to us. Since it's a podcast, it's not live. You can pause it and call us right then. You don't have to wait till the end. Okay. And so it's sort of a shorthand. I picked that up from Recovered Cast, maybe. And sorry, it's confusing. Uh, I appreciate the improved recording quality and that you do not have strong accents or use heavy slang, especially for someone who is not a native speaker of English. It is easier to focus on the content of what is said. In the last podcast, there were one or two incidents where a few of you were talking at the same time and I got lost for a short moment. But when I listened to it again, I didn't notice it anymore, so it wasn't too bad. In the end, I value the relaxed atmosphere of the podcast more than a strict meeting discipline. I don't think we could do a strict meeting. This <laughs> I just don't think so. We're too comfortable with each other now. Right. <laughs> In regard to the topic of finances, I think that I would just finance 30 bucks alone every month if I had not read the seventh tradition in time. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Thanks, Ruth. <laughs> Instead of distracting you with too much money, I donate more for my Al-Anon home group now. Considering the seventh tradition, I would propose that you maybe choose a project like the Dawn Farm or something similar where you donate money that is not needed to keep the podcast running at the end of the year. As I understand the seventh tradition, it is not appropriate to donate it to Al-Anon itself. And uh, I think Kelly wrote, great idea, Ruth. Um, which it is. If we ever have an overage, we will. Um, we haven't yet. One last thing. Can't I have one new podcast each and every day? <laughs> I have to admit that I get a little bit addicted. Just joking. <laughs> 
No, I understand. I really do. My higher power already gave me the insight that I may be able to better use uh, better use the content if I give myself more time to progress what I have heard, that there's literature to read, that I could try to contribute myself more to the Fellowship of Al-Anon in many ways instead of just consuming. So if I read that correctly, you're saying that actually it's a good thing we don't have one every day because mm-hmm. it makes you work your program, which I really encourage you to do, yeah. I hope my thoughts are helpful. Thanks for your work, and have a good time doing the next episodes. Ruth. Thanks, Ruth. Um, did you guys have any thoughts on... Um, I I think we sort of commented while we were reading it. <laughs> okay. Well, um, iTunes reviews and ratings help us make help to make us easier to find to the by those in need who are seeking recovery. If you're concerned about anonymity, you can give us a rating without writing a review, and your identity will not be shown. We had three new reviews recently, including one from Australia, a new continent by a new continent checking in. <laughs> Thank you for your support. Uh, Kelly, do you want to read the first one? Yes. This is titled Recovery Five Stars by H. Rhodes from Australia. Yay. Uh, it says, I gain much blessing when I listen to conscientious minds seek the common implications of loving an addict. I learn about myself and find I am able to reflect on situations of high relevance that I simply couldn't think and identify alone. Thank you for your service. Okay. And Ayla from the United States titled Recovery Jumpstart Five Stars. What a wonderful resource this podcast is. The hosts are down to earth and their experiences and insights have been so helpful to me. I download and listen while I commute. Wonderful way to start my day. Thanks again. And we have one from Jay Tall uh, that says, Since finding this show a couple months ago, it has become an important part of my program. I listen to it in my car and from work all the all there, all of the time, and it helps me stay in an Al-Anon frame of mind. I work three jobs, have two small children, and my primary qualifier is my husband, who is an active alcoholic. With all of that going on, I only make it to one meeting a week, and finding time for literature is really difficult. Read impossible. <laughs> this show gives me a resource that I can actually use, and the show hosts are great. I like it much better than the official Al-Anon podcast. Thanks Smiley so face much. there. <laughs> <laughs> Smiley face, yep. <clears throat> Thanks so much. Um, Spencer, do you want to talk about our podcast and website news? Um, sure. So um, as as we, I think, mentioned a couple of weeks ago, we had a group conscience meeting um, to uh, about the podcast to sort of look at where we are, where we want to be, where we're going, um, and to address some questions that have been raised by ourselves and our listeners. And we want to report out uh, a few of our findings or decisions from that. Several of our listeners had raised questions about whether we are breaking anonymity when we talk about our week in recovery and particularly when we talk about our meetings. So we went back and looked at the vision for this segment of the podcast. And the vision for this segment of the podcast, is, which is to let you, our listeners, and particularly maybe new listeners who are not new to the program or maybe haven't even come to a meeting yet, what it's like to live um, a life of recovery. And so that's that's the vision. Um, and we came up with three points that we want to uh, keep in mind as we're sharing, and in particular as we're sharing about what happens in meetings. First is, are we displaying um, how we live our life in recovery? Second, are we expressing the experience of a meeting maybe more than the particulars? What 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 did that meeting say to us? Not this person said this, this person said that, but what did I hear? What did I take away from it? And third is, and this is really critical to the anonymity, um, to be really careful about what anything we say that might sort of out somebody. Uh, that that somebody who maybe knows a person but was not at the meeting might recognize that from the description. And and so we're going to try to really um, keep those three, three, three in mind while we're talking. 
We also heard from some listeners that they value the listener feedback section where we play your voicemails and read your emails. So we're going to continue to do this. And really, it supports another goal, which is building a community around the recovery show. Um, we talked about how open and transparent we feel we should be about our finances since we're taking donations. And we uh, decided that we're not really going to post anything on the website. That seemed to me a little too open and transparent. I don't know. Uh, but if you have a concern about how we're spending or might be spending your donations, you can always email us and we can send you a summary of our income and expenses. And uh, coming up, uh, we're looking forward, and, and thank you, Kelly, for bringing this one up. We're looking forward to our what, what we're going to do to celebrate a year, assuming we make it to a year, which I think we will. And uh, the idea that, that Kelly proposed was that we make it a show uh, with first step stories from us and our listeners. And we haven't worked out the details yet, but the basic idea is we'd be asking for maybe a 10-minute um, share uh, in the format of the the AA Open Talk format, I guess is how I've heard it described, of uh, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now uh, to tell your own story. And then um, we'll, we'll put those together into a, an anniversary show. So we'll have more details about that coming along. And uh, so that was our group conscience. Uh, we talked about some other things that are really um Less important, and uh, but we are trying to keep ourselves being intentional about what we're doing here. I also want to remind everybody that our sister podcast, Recovered, is continuing to upload episodes of the Twelve Hour Podcast, and I think he uploaded Hour Nine, um, and you can find that on RecoveredCast dot com. Okay. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Kelly. Remember, it doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses, which run about $30 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. We have a donation basket button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Mark did. We have put together a list of recovery-related books. Click on the books link at the top of the page. If you order one of these books from Amazon through our website, we will receive a small commission. In fact, you can order anything from Amazon using the search box at the bottom of the books page. It costs you nothing extra and helps to keep us on the air. Thanks for your support in whatever form you give it, including just listening to us. We're here for you. And we're going to close the show with a song by Sean Mullins called Lullaby. And... Um we liked this song a lot. Uh, several of the verses sort of explain some kind of different crazy circumstances that people go through in life. And each time of the chorus, he comes back to the idea that, um, you know, no matter what happens, everything's going to be okay. She grew up with the children of the stars In the Hollywood hills and the boulevards Her parents threw big parties, everyone was there. They hung out with folks like Dennis Hopper and Bob Seeger and Sonny and Cher. But she feels safe now in this bar on Fairfax. And from the stage I can tell that she can't let go and she can't relax. Just before she hangs her head to cry I sing to her a lullaby Thank you for listening and please keep coming back Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too if we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so that we can talk about it in a future episode. 
May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time. Rockabye. She still lives with her mom outside the city. Down that street about a half a mile. And all her friends tell her she's so pretty. Or she'd be a whole lot prettier if she smiled once in a while. Cause even her 